Well, hello and welcome to Blog Talk Radio's Essential Spiritual Fitness Program on this Saturday morning, March 14th, A.D. 2015. I'm your host, Paul Rackwitz, spiritual fitness coach, author and founder of the Essential Spiritual Fitness Program, coming to you live from Highland, Michigan, as I do every Saturday morning at 11 o'clock a.m. We've got a fantastic show for you this morning, as today we continue our series looking at all the covenants of Scripture. Today, we'll delve deeper into why the Genesis creation account is not that heavens and earth which passed away at the Persea. Simply understanding the Melchizedek priesthood, as we covered last week, is sufficient to make this point, and we'll be talking again about this priesthood today. But with the covenant of dominion, you'll see another simple, straightforward way to understand why the little literal creation of the heavenly and earthly realm described in Genesis 1, is not that which passed away. Now, I know that in our modern-day thinking, there is much confusion about the covenants of God made with mankind. So today, again, we'll do a quick review noting the covenants and, very briefly, the narrative of Scripture. And then, after this quick review to set the stage, we'll enter into a discussion of the dominion mandate, which is the covenant of dominion. Along the way, we'll continue our conversation on the two different priesthoods we see in Scripture, the first and eternal priesthood, known as the Melchizedek Order, and the temporary priesthood added for but a short while, the Levitical. Now, there's a lot here connected to the dominion mandate, to this covenant of dominion, so we won't be able to cover it all today, but we should be able to get a good start. As always, we will continue to positively affirm the biblical understanding of the covenants from creation to Christ, demonstrating both the profound nature of Genesis chapter 1 as it relates to the literal creation of the heavenly and earthly realms and the progressive revelation that ultimately brings forth what Scripture knows as the first heavens and earth through Moses that is ultimately done away through the advent of the Christ. Now this progressive revelation is going to be important again today as we cover this dominion mandate. Understanding the priesthood and the dominion mandate together through the progressive revelation of God is how we come to understand the covenants. So this show is designed to help all believers, regardless of your background or current thinking, regardless of whether you, one, Agree with 2,000 years of Christian saints that Genesis 1 is about the physical creation, or two, are presently confused given the rash of different teachings running through certain camps, both scientific and religious, or three, are thoroughly convinced that Genesis 1 isn't about the literal creation of the universe at all, due to the higher criticism of certain scholarly types. Wherever you're currently at, you will find this show immensely satisfying as it will either bolster your faith, undo your present confusion, or challenge you to abandon your current belief. Let's start again today with a quick review of the covenants. Remember we have the following. Before the fall, we have the dominion mandate, the covenant of dominion with humankind. And this is what we'll be starting our discussion a little bit more deeply on today. And then after the fall, we have the Adamic covenant, which was the promise of the Christ, the Noah covenant, which was the promise to never again blot out all flesh. We have the Abrahamic covenant, 
which is the promise of the means through which the Christ would come to fulfill the Adamic covenant, and which actually came through Isaac and Jacob Israel, then even more specifically through King David and the Davidic covenant. Then we have the Old or Mosaic covenant, which was the promise through Moses of the first heavens and earth that would act as a guardian and guide humankind through the fallen world unto the new heavens and earth. And then, finally, we have the new covenant, the promise fulfilled for both the Adamic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant, and therefore the dissolution of the remaining outward relics of the old Mosaic covenant is brought to pass as well. In that new covenant, we as well have the fulfillment of our first covenant, that of the dominion mandate. So that's a review of the covenants, and let's look again then quickly at the narrative of Scripture. In order to understand all of these conversations, all of the covenants and what we read in Scripture, it's important to understand the covenants through which God worked out his revelation and the narrative through which we see God working out his will through the covenants. So the narrative of Scripture starts with the original creation, that literal universe, the spiritual realm and the earthly realm. And then we have the original priesthood, Melchizedek, not the Levitical. And then we have the mutiny in heaven. This is that concept of Satan, mutinying against God and being cast out of heaven. And then we have Adam placed in the garden, and we have him falling, being enticed by that mutinous fallen angel. So already in the narrative, we have very early on two different environments. The environment into which Adam was first formed, and the environment into which Adam was cast after his sin, and was therefore immediately judged with that judgment of death which passed through to all of humanity. After the fall, then, we come up to the flood, with sin having become such a problem in this fallen world that God had to bring a universal flood and start anew the human race through Noah. And here at the flood, we have this covenant with Noah given that God would not destroy all flesh ever again. After the flood, then, we see sin ramping up again, leading to the Tower of Babel. And here at the Tower of Babel, we therefore have Christ needing to separate men by language across the face of the earth in order to separate them and keep them in different groups in order to help keep them from coming into one group as one large band of sinners as happened leading up to the flood and was happening here as we led up to the Tower of Babel. And remember, the whole purpose of that tower that they were building there was for these men to rise up against God and say to him, even if you flood the world, we will build a tower so high up into heaven that the flood won't be able to reach us. They were trying to build a fortress that they felt would keep them from any future judgments of God. And so, being of one language and of one people, sin kept just sort of massing together, almost in that crowd mentality. And so God resolved that through the Tower of Babel by separating people through language across the face of the earth. 
After the Tower of Babel, we have Abraham called, and he is called from this post-flood, post-Tower of Babel world. And Abraham, through faith, was called, and this Abrahamic covenant was given to him. And in essence, this covenant was that through him, the Christ that was promised to Adam in the Adamic covenant would come. And so when we understand of the Abrahamic covenant that all the world would be blessed through him and through this covenant, it isn't through Abraham that they'll be blessed. It's through that which will come through Abraham, which is the Christ. After the Abrahamic covenant and Abraham's calling, we then have Isaac and Jacob through that lineage brought forth the Israelites. And with the Israelites, we have then the Mosaic covenant given. This Mosaic covenant is given as the first heavens and earth. And it's given to be our guardian. Remember, given the level of sin that led to the flood and that led to the Tower of Babel, God is implementing here this temporary Mosaic Covenant. And in this temporary Mosaic Covenant, he is giving his written word, the laws, commandments, the law making up of, made up of the commandments, statutes, and judgments by which the people could keep themselves from sin and make it to that point in history when Christ would ultimately come. It's interesting to note here that in this Mosaic Covenant is the first time that we see a human priest called. We'll touch on that as we go today. But consider that. It's very important. This Mosaic Covenant is the first calling of a human priest in Aaron. First calling of a human priest in Aaron. Now, after Moses, we then get to, continuing through the narrative of Scripture, we get to Jeremiah, who was the first to call that Mosaic Covenant old. And in so calling it old, he then made way immediately for that which would come and be the new. After Jeremiah, we see the preparation. We see that fallen post-flood world prepared through the Greekification of the world, the conversion of that old language into the language of the world into which Christ would come, Greek, we see that old language translated into the Septuagint in preparation for the coming of the Christ. And we see all the sons of Noah brought under the rule of the Roman Empire. So that's the preparation for the coming of the Christ. And then in the narrative of Scripture, we have Christ the Conqueror coming. First, as that little child, the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, the incarnate God, Christ, God with us, Emmanuel. And then Christ, through his ministry, and then the cross and the descent into hell and the resurrection, and then the ascension up into heaven, and then the giving of his spirit at Pentecost, Whitsunday, White Sunday, unto his people, bringing forth the great victory that he won in fulfillment of the Adamic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant. And then finally we have the Universal Restoration. The Universal Restoration being the time when this Christ who had won the victory at the cross for the saints then brought all of the universe, the saints and the sinners, into that kingdom. 
kicking and screaming for the sinners, no doubt. And that's what that story of the judgment at the end is all about. So that's the narrative of Scripture taking us from that original creation in which all of these things would happen through to the first calling of human priests in the Mosaic Covenant, that first heavens and earth that would become old and done away with, all the way to Christ who fulfilled the dominion mandate, the Adamic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, all the way through. We have in this Christ in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, fulfilling everything that came before. So that's the basic idea of the covenants and the narrative of Scripture. So today, we want to get a little bit deeper now into the covenant of dominion, the dominion mandate. It's a very, it's the place to start. It's the first covenant given in Scripture. So this is the place to start, and let's begin by first looking at this original creation. <clears throat> in this original creation, remember, is where we have this covenant given. So this original creation was of the universe itself, not the heavens and earth that were to be destroyed at the Perusia. Those came later in the Mosaic Covenant. Now God said of this original creation that it was very good, powerful statement that he makes there. And the dominion mandate, the covenant of dominion, was initiated here in this original creation. The rest of the covenants that we see in Scripture, God is using to bring forth the fulfillment of this first covenant of dominion. That's an important point. And ultimately, Jesus preaching the kingdom of God and bringing forth the kingdom through the new creation is the ultimate fulfillment of this dominion mandate, of this covenant of dominion. So when we think about that original creation, we think about the first covenant we see in Scripture. Now, just so that we don't miss anything, we're going to actually read here out of Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, to see this dominion mandate, this covenant of dominion given unto humankind. Starting verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, we have God speaking here, and he said, Let us make man according to our image and likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the flying creatures of heaven, and over the cattle and all the earth, and over all the creeping things that creep on the earth. And God made man according to the image of God he made him. Male and female he made them. And God blessed them, saying, Increase and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the seas, and flying creatures of heaven, and all the cattle and all the earth, and all the creeping things that creep upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given to you every seed bearing herbs, sowing seed, which is upon all the earth. So again, in verse 29, God said, Behold, I have given to you every seed bearing herbs, sowing seed, which is upon all the earth, and every tree which has in itself the fruit of seed that is sown. To you it shall be for food. And to all the wild beasts of the earth, and to all the flying creatures of heaven, and to every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth, which has in itself the breath of life, even every green plant for food. And it was so. 
And in verse 31, God said, And God saw all the things that he had made, and behold, they were very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So do you see here in Genesis chapter 1 and verses 26 through 31 that on the sixth day God made man, male and female. Now, if you were to uh, take advantage of reading my book, The Pearl, The Captivating Story of the Wondrous Love of God, you'd get a sense for the seminal creation that we have recorded for us here in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Seminal creation means that stages we see the creation coming to pass. God is relating to us both those things that he's doing in his mind and those things that he does in the real world through actual formation of the things he first creates in his mind. So here in this first chapter in verses 26 through 31, we see God creating in his mind humankind, mankind, male and female, and giving them this dominion mandate. What we'll find is after the seven-day creation, then what we refer to as on day eight, we see Adam first being formed. Humankind had all been created, but not physically formed yet in the earth. And then what we have in Genesis chapter two, on quote-unquote day eight, is the actual formation of the first man of humankind which God created on day six. So that's this notion of the seminal creation that we want to understand in order to understand the literal creation account given here in Genesis chapter one and two. So we have then this dominion mandate and I'm going to pull back up a little higher because in this dominion mandate now I have to ask the question did we see anything about Adam being a priest there? We see Adam being given dominion over God's earthly realm. Adam wasn't given dominion over the spiritual realm. Adam was given dominion over the earthly realm. And in the giving of that dominion, do you see him being called out to be a priest? We don't see that here in Genesis chapter 1. You won't find the word priest until we get out to Genesis chapter 14. And when you find the word priest for the first time out in Genesis chapter 14, what you'll find is that term is used in reference to who? Melchizedek. And when you go out and understand that term being used in reference to Melchizedek, then what you do is you go to Hebrews chapter 7, and in Hebrews chapter 7, you see this Melchizedek of Genesis 14 described. And when you do that, what you'll find is that this first priest mentioned in Scripture, Melchizedek, in Genesis 14, is described in Hebrews chapter 7 by the Apostle Paul as being literally the pre-incarnate Christ, which then takes us back to the tree of life, in the Garden of Eden, and we can see in this original creation that in the Garden, Adam wasn't the first priest. Adam wasn't created and given a priesthood, but Adam was created under the priesthood of Melchizedek, who was the pre-incarnate Christ, who in the Garden is referred to as that 
tree of life. That tree whose fruit would bring forth eternity. So let's look over quickly at, Genesis, at Hebrews chapter 7 to understand what we're looking at when we think of this concept of the priesthood in the original creation. Because it's vital to our understanding this covenant of dominion. And ultimately, it's vital to understanding it in relation as well to covenant creation. So, connecting it to covenant creation, let's read a quote here from one of the authors of Beyond Creation Science, which is the manual for covenant creation. Um, this is from J.L. Vaughn, and it is something that you can find at the website Death is Defeated, deathisdefeated.ning.com. You'll see a comment there from September 19, 2012 at 11.19 a.m. Uh, from Jeff in a conversation with another person there. And what he wrote there is, I believe Genesis 1 is an historical count in the strict sense of an event that occurred some 2,000 years or so before Sinai. Now, he's not saying that he believes that this was the literal physical universe created. But I think most of you would recognize that who are listening here. But then he goes on to say, God made a covenant with his people, of which he made Adam priest and king as God's son and in God's image. The law was given to Adam long before the law was given to the people at Sinai. That's his quote there on deathisdefeated.ning.com from September 19, 2012. Again, he believes that God made a covenant with his people, and I'm quoting directly, of which he made Adam priest and king as God's son and in God's image. That's a direct quote from the one of the authors of Beyond Creation Science. Now, I make reference to this because what we then have to address is, was Adam really a priest in the Garden of Eden? If he was, you'd think that we would see that somewhere in Scripture. You'd think that somewhere in Scripture we would be told that Adam was a priest. But we're not. Nowhere in Scripture are we able to see anyone calling Adam priest. Now in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 4, and we went over this last week, we do see the authors of the New Testament writing with their inspired pen through the Spirit of God making this comment. This is Hebrews 5, verse 4. Note also that nobody chooses for himself the honor of being a high priest, but he is called by God to the work, as was Aaron, the first high priest in ancient times. Well, Scripture then, in Hebrews, tells us that the first priest, the first high priest in ancient times, was Aaron. Now, when we understand what we're going to look at here in Melchizedek, in Genesis 14, we'll see why the Apostle Paul refers to Aaron as the first high priest in ancient times, because the Apostle Paul is speaking of the first human high priest. There was a priest of the Most High God prior to Aaron. That priest of the Most High God was Melchizedek. 
And we see him called out in Genesis chapter 14. And as we work our way back, we see that this Melchizedek was the tree of life. He was the priest in the Garden of Eden. The pre-incarnate Christ was literally the priest in the Garden of Eden. The priest of that first creation, the priest in which Adam first dwelt with God, through which, the priest through which Adam first dwelt with God. So we see in Hebrews chapter 5, Aaron as the first human priest, called out in Scripture, the first human priest. Not Adam. You'll not find Adam called a priest anywhere in Scripture. But instead, Aaron. Now let's go to Hebrews chapter 7, because in chapter 7, what we see is a description of Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, that we are introduced to first in Genesis 14. And from there, we can then understand who that priest was in the original creation. So over here in Hebrews chapter 7, it says, Now this Melchizedek was, we know, king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. He met Abraham. Now he's taking us back to Genesis 14. He's telling us about who this Melchizedek was in Genesis 14. He met Abraham when the latter was returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. Abraham gave him a tribute of a tenth part of all the spoils of battle. Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and his other title is for Salem means peace. He had no father or mother and no family tree. He was not born, nor did he die, but being like the Son of God is a perpetual priest. Here we have the Apostle Paul describing for us that priest, that met Abraham, Abram at the time, in Genesis 14, through which we can understand who was that priest in the original Garden of Eden, that tree of life, whose fruit, if you were to eat of it, would provide you everlasting life. So let's look at Hebrews 7, 1 through 3 and ask some questions of ourselves. First off, who is the king of Salem? Jerusalem. Who is the king of Jerusalem if not Jesus? But this is describing this Jesus before his incarnation. And so he goes on to make that clear by saying, he had no father or mother and no family tree. The first thing I'd ask myself is, well, who has no father or mother and no family tree? My only answer to that would be God. No one other than God has no father, no mother, and no family tree. Next question that I would ask is, who was not born nor died? Who was not born nor died? Remember in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3, the Apostle Paul tells us this Melchizedek, who met Abram, was not born, nor did he die. Well, other than God, who would meet that qualification? And then he goes on to say, and who is like the Son of God? Now that Melchizedek of Genesis 14 is the only one who meets that qualification as well. He is like the Son of God in Hebrews here in verse 3 of chapter 7. In the exact same way that the appearance of the fourth man in that fiery furnace before Nebuchadnezzar is like the Son of God. 
Go back to Daniel 3.25, and you'll see this same concept. This fourth man in that fire was said to look, appear like the Son of God. That's what we have of this Melchizedek, the same statement being made. So in reading these questions and answering them, no one fits these qualifications for that Melchizedek of Genesis chapter 14, but the pre-incarnate Christ. For the pre-incarnate Christ also had no father or mother or no family tree, nor was he born nor he died. And that pre-incarnate Christ was like the Son of God in Daniel 3.25. This pre-incarnate Christ matches all the criteria here of Hebrews chapter 7. The next thing that we're told in verse 3 of Hebrews 7 is that he is a perpetual priest. Now who, who can meet the qualification of being a perpetual priest other than Christ? No one. No one but Christ himself can meet the qualifications given in Hebrews chapter 7 of that Melchizedek priest we saw meeting Abram in Genesis 14. Now remember, when Christ became incarnate, he as a man was born of a woman, and his father was God, and he died on the cross. But this pre-incarnate Christ, this is the one who ultimately became incarnate in that body of the flesh, this is the one being described by the Apostle Paul. So in this marvelous book of Hebrews, we have for us given this eternal priesthood of Melchizedek, who always and, and which priesthood had always one person who fit the bill to fulfill its qualifications, that being Christ himself. So from the beginning... To the end, we have the eternal priesthood of Christ, the mediator between God and man, present in the story. Taking that all in, soaking that all in, go back to the original creation. Was Adam the priest in the Garden of Eden? There's no mention of Adam being the priest in the Garden of Eden in Scripture. None whatsoever. We do see in Scripture that Aaron was the first man who was called to be a high priest. But before Aaron, there was no human being that was a priest. Now, some of you, as you're listening to this, might be thinking to yourself, but I know Scripture tells me. I know Scripture tells me that God made us to be a kingdom of priests and kings. And that's true. God did make us to be a kingdom of priests and kings. But did he make us that way in the original creation? Did he make us a priest in the original creation? Or rather, was it through the revelation over time that he made for us a kingdom in which we would be kings and priests? That's what really happened. We were made kings and priests over time. Now that takes us to a very interesting point as well, doesn't it? We were made kings and priests over time. 
we weren't created in our original state as that king and priest. Now to further our story here that Adam was not the priest in the Garden of Eden, I would ask the question, who made sacrifice? Who shed blood for Adam's sin? Now, if Adam was a priest, he would have done that himself. But Adam didn't do that himself. In chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 21 through 24, we have the following. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And then, in verse 24, God cast Adam out, caused him to dwell over against the Garden of Delight, and he stationed the cherubs and the fiery sword that turns about to keep the way of the tree of life. So we have in verse 21 of chapter 3, our Lord God, in his role as the high priest, making for Adam and Eve garments of skin, obviously shedding blood to do that, clothing them, and then of his own self, stationing the cherubs and the fiery sword that turns about to keep the way of the tree of life. In other words, shrouding in mystery this Melchizedek priesthood, the priesthood of that original creation. That's what's happening when Adam is cast out of the Garden of Delight and God stations cherubs and the fiery sword that turns about to keep the way of the tree of life. He's shrouding in mystery that Melchizedek priesthood, the original priesthood of that first creation. Now, as we walk through the story, remember, we keep starting with that narrative of the story so you can piece all this together as we talk about it. Think forward a little bit. We already read that Aaron was the first human being called to be a priest. And from Aaron, we have the Levitical priesthood of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, I have to ask this question, and you need to think through this. In seeing in Scripture that Aaron was the first human being called to be a priest, was Adam a part of that Levitical priesthood? Was Adam a part of any priesthood? From Scripture, we don't see Adam being a part of any priesthood. We see Adam formed to live under the mediation of the high priest Melchizedek, who Hebrews 7 tells us was the pre-incarnate Christ. And in the garden, he's referred to as the tree of life, that tree whose fruit, when one would eat, would provide eternal life. We see Adam eating of that tree in the garden, and then when he falls, we see him losing that life and losing access to that eternal life. And so he dies. And at that same time, we see that high priest who could bring eternal life and who was bringing life to Adam in the garden, shrouded in mystery and kept from Adam and his generations. That's what we see in the garden. That's the story of the Garden of Eden. 
The story of the Garden of Eden without Christ, the Melchizedek priest, being the mediator there in the garden, makes no sense at all. Making Adam the priest in the Garden of Eden completely undermines all of Scripture, destroys the story of the Christ completely, and turns the writer of Hebrews into someone who has no idea what he's talking about. Hebrews tells us plainly Aaron was the first man to be a high priest, and it tells us plainly that the pre-incarnate Christ was Melchizedek of Genesis 14. And as we work our way back, then we can understand that the tree of life in the garden was that Melchizedek, pre-incarnate Christ, who gave life unto Adam, and whose life-giving fruit was taken from Adam at the fall. Does that make sense? That's what we're talking about here, the dominion mandate. It was given unto Adam, and Adam, not as a priest, but as the federal head of humanity, was to bring into dominion under humankind this creation of God. And he was to do that following the commandments, statutes, and judgments of that priest of the Most High God to whom he had direct access, that Holy of Holies, Christ himself, pre-incarnate, referred to there as the Tree of Life. That's what we're looking at. So when we have a theory like covenant creation built on the notion that Genesis chapter 1 isn't about the physical creation at all, but is instead about the building of a temple and the installation of Adam as the high priest of that temple, we don't need to go very far to, uh, to undo that teaching. We just need to start with the very first covenant, the covenant of dominion, and with the very first priesthood, priesthood of Melchizedek. And doing just that and that alone will have undone the entire covenant creation story. Nothing left of it. If Adam's not the first priest, then what's happening there? Well, I know what's happening there. God was building the physical universe. He was building the spiritual realm. He was building the earthly realm, including the heavens of our atmosphere and the heavens of outer space. And in so doing, he was placing Adam there, federal head of humankind, in order to bring this creation which he had made for this very purpose under the dominion of the high point of his creation. And he was doing all of this through the mediation of that Melchizedek priesthood, the pre-incarnate Christ. That's what's happening in Genesis chapter 1. Now when Adam falls... Then the story proceeds, and we see in Genesis 14, this Melchizedek priesthood handing over a blessing to Abraham and to Levi, who paid tithes to this Melchizedek priesthood through Abraham. It's part of the story there. 
And when we get to that point, think of what has happened. The dominion mandate, the first covenant given unto Adam, well, humankind was failing at. Adam fell, so he immediately put himself in a position where he was not going to have dominion. That concept of death coming unto Adam, that meant that he lost his dominion. So the whole story, the rest of the covenants, will bring dominion back to humankind. So we see the flood because that loss of dominion was so powerful that it brought sin in such a way that we had the flood. And that sin was so powerful after the flood still that it brought forth the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel. And then we go from there to the calling of Abraham and we see now the Melchizedek priesthood handing a blessing giving a blessing to Abraham, and in essence, handing the baton of the priesthood to the descendants of Abraham, ultimately Aaron, who was, as Paul said in the Hebrews chapter 5, the first human who was called to be a high priest. This is that first heavens and earth, always meant to be temporary, that was brought forth, and it, for the first time, brought mankind into the priesthood. It brought mankind into a priesthood that was temporary. And it was a temporary priesthood because the priesthood that man first received, the Levitical priesthood, was a priesthood that could not do away with sin. It was a priesthood that could not overcome the ancestral sin of Adam. So this first heavens and earth wasn't the fulfillment of the Adamic covenant, which was the promise of the Christ. It was the means by which God would ensure that humanity could make it through the generations needed to bring forth the Christ. That's why the law and that Mosaic Covenant and the Levitical Priesthood is referred to as our tutor. It was meant to keep us from falling into such sin as happened that brought forth the flood and the Tower of Babel. So this temporary Mosaic Covenant and this temporary Levitical Priesthood that went with it, the first human priest being Aaron, then ultimately also fell into disarray. And so Jeremiah called it old. And from there we have the preparation of the peoples of the earth for the coming of the Christ who came to that Greco-Roman world that was prepared specifically for his coming. Now when Christ came, this incarnation the pre-incarnate Christ becoming incarnate in the body of flesh of that little babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. This was now the bringing of humankind into the priesthood of Melchizedek. This is now the bringing of humankind into that priesthood of Melchizedek, that was the first priesthood of the original creation. 
in so doing, this incarnate Christ, Jesus, became the new federal head of a new creation. He did not become the new priest because the Christ was the priest from the beginning. He did not take over a priesthood from Adam. He took over the federal headship from Adam. And in so doing, he brought humanity into the Melchizedek priesthood. By doing this, our Lord, through the Incarnation, then fulfilled the Dominion Mandate. That's our discussion today, the Dominion Mandate. Adam was formed to live under the Melchizedek priesthood, and he failed in his role, given him that of dominion. Christ came incarnate, the second Adam, the federal head of a new creation, also under the Melchizedek priesthood, who he was, he was now both, this new Adam, under the original priesthood of Melchizedek, gained dominion, fulfilled the dominion mandate, gained dominion. And it is that dominion mandate that Christ brought to fulfillment in himself as the federal head of humanity and that priest which he always was from the beginning. So that is our lesson here today. Our lesson is all about the dominion mandate, that first dominion mandate, that first covenant of Scripture that was fulfilled in Christ and which was given with Christ as the priest, the mediator between God and man, and man as the head of the earthly realm, not the priest of the earthly realm. In the original creation, the dominion mandate is given, and in that original creation, and in that original covenant, before the fall, Christ, pre-incarnate, is the priest of the Most High God, and Adam is the man given the role of taking this earthly realm under his dominion, following the commandments, statutes, and judgments of that priest, Melchizedek, the mediator between God and man. All of that comes to fruition and fulfillment in Christ and his incarnation. As Christ in his incarnation became the second Adam and so was capable of fulfilling as a man the dominion mandate, that first covenant, which Adam failed to fulfill. And then also, because he was already 
eternally, that priest of the Melchizedek order, he brought humankind into that priesthood and resolved all of the covenants in himself. Now remember I mentioned those verses that some of you may be thinking of. God made us to be a kingdom of priests and kings. Well, I want you to go into Scripture and read those. Okay, I want you to go into Scripture and read those verses. And notice where they are. We have them noted. We have a verse like that in the time of Moses associated with Mosaic Covenant where God was telling his chosen people then of the Mosaic Covenant, living under the Mosaic Covenant, that he wanted to make them a kingdom of priests and kings. And in Revelation, we have that same notion. We have that notion that he was bringing them forth. He was bringing them forth to be a kingdom of priests and kings. He's making them a kingdom that they might be a kingdom of priests and kings. So think about that. In the original creation, that's not where God started. He didn't start with man being a priest and a king. He started with man being that federal head over creation, Christ pre-incarnate being the high priest. And then through the working out of the covenants, through the progressive revelation of Scripture, he ultimately made a kingdom through Christ where men are now priests and kings. That was his ultimate goal when he started in the original creation. That's not where he started. It's where he ended. So don't make the mistake of trying to recreate in a new covenant that which was created in the original creation. That's not what is happening. In the original creation, we have the formation of all these things so that we can work our way through the fall all the way through to Christ so that Christ can be all in all and bring a kingdom where we can be priests and kings. So that's all wrapped into this notion of the dominion mandate, the covenant of dominion, the very first covenant into humankind, given to Adam kind, given to humanity. If we walk ourselves slowly through this covenant of dominion, if we walk ourselves slowly through this covenant and understand what's happening with this covenant and as it unfolds through Scripture, we will see that covenant creation can't be true because Adam was not the priest. Adam was not a high priest. Christ was the priest in that original creation. So Christ did not do away with that original creation. He fulfilled it. What he did away with was the Mosaic Covenant, which first brought mankind into the priesthood, but it was only a temporary priesthood because priests of the Levitical type always were dying and the new one would have to come. But the priests of the Melchizedek type never die. So going all the way back to that original creation, and going all the way back to that first covenant made with man, those doing those two things will provide us the context of Scripture to understand everything's fulfillment 
in Christ. Okay, so I think that's going to be enough for today. There's a lot more that we can talk about on this Dominion Covenant, and maybe next week we'll do more of that. Because not only in understanding the Dominion Covenant do we undo covenant creation and return ourselves to the correct interpretation of Scripture that the Genesis creation account is of the literal, physical, human, or, or literal, physical, heavenly and earthly realms. And then we see from there springing forth all these different covenants and the, them all fulfilling themselves in Christ. Not only do we return ourselves to that correct understanding of things, but also by understanding the covenant of dominion and that original creation. What we also do is we come to understand what it means when Christ says, occupy till I come. So maybe next week what we'll do is we'll cover that notion of what it means, occupy till I come, and what it means to be a part of the priesthood of all believers, and how we occupy according to this now fulfilled covenant of dominion between God and mankind. So I think that's what we'll get into a little bit next week as a subject in and of itself, but it extends the notion of what we learned in this study about this dominion mandate. So this brings us to the end of our show. Uh, in our regular Saturday morning shows, we'll keep learning more and more about all of these things, which really boil all down to Christ's completed atonement at the cross, his harrowing of hell, redemptions, and redemption's natural result, and how continuing in Christ's word is the mean by which we can integrate him into our daily lives with both a cleansed spirit and a purified conscience. I'd ask that you remember as well, I've written a couple of books, The Pearl, the Captivating Story of the Wondrous Love of God, which really goes through a lot of that creation account and the fulfillment of the dominion mandate in Christ. Um, so you might want to take a look at that book. It's available at Amazon. Or if you join my spiritual fitness program, I'll actually send you that book for free. So your first month in the spiritual fitness program, you'll actually be ahead of the game. Um, and then I wrote another book recently called The Virtuous Life, God's First and Great Commandment. And this is a book describing in detail how we can love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength and our, num and our neighbor as ourselves, or as I like to say, our neighbor and our own selves. As for my spiritual fitness program, you can learn more about that at my website, www.spiritualfitnessprogram.com. That's www.spiritualfitnessprogram.com. And there you will learn more about how you can participate in the spiritual fitness program and what it will provide you. Um, the beauty of the spiritual fitness program is this. It is based on this teaching of the covenants and this teaching of the narrative of Scripture, including that Greekification of the world in preparation for the coming of the Christ. So this entire program teaches you and prepares you and provides you notes on Scripture as you read through Scripture from this 
very early and historic way of understanding our faith. So it's a great program. There's over 2,000 notes in there from all from 2,000 years of church history teaching these covenants and this whole notion of the dominion mandate, the covenant of dominion being fulfilled in Christ. And really, this spiritual fitness program is where I get my material from for these uh, podcasts. So if you want to get more deeply into all of this, getting into the program is the place to be because that's where all of this stuff is at. Um, so I want to say looking forward that you make sure and mark your calendar for next week as we're putting together another fantastic show for you, which we just discussed a little bit. So be sure to tune in again next week at the same time. As for today, thank you for joining us this 14th day of March in the 2015th year of our Lord. I'm Paul Rackwitz, spiritual fitness coach, author, and founder of the Essential Spiritual Fitness Program. I've enjoyed being your host and coming to you live this morning from Highland, Michigan, as I do every Saturday morning at 11 o'clock a.m. I hope today that you've been blessed by listening in. And in the meantime, before I see you again, I would say be well, God bless, and I'll see you the next time.